book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 5, going through verse 17. If you're like me and you don't like writing notes in the margins of your Bible, because I like to go to the word fresh every time and don't like to see my old notes, uh, a great option is this First and Second Samuel scripture journal. And we have these on the Narthex table. So if you don't have one, we have plenty of copies. These are free. You can just grab one. It's got the text, the scripture text on the left, and then you can make notes on every page on the right. So please grab one if you don't have one. We'll be looking all the way through, uh, we'll be looking at through verse 17 of chapter 25. I was going to preach the whole thing, but it's 44 verses. So decided against that. In fact, there's a lot to glean even from the first 17 verses. Um, if you'll recall, the chapter 24, 25, and 26 are following David, especially as, as Saul has been pursuing David. Um, David is, is now the, the, the next anointed king, right? He's going to replace Saul in due time. And David has an opportunity to take Saul out. He's in the cave. Remember, Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself, and David uh, takes a corner of his robe instead of killing him. So he shows restraint. So in chapter 24, 25, and 26 are all examples of how God helps us helps restrain us from our worst inclinations. He pulls us back. His grace stops us from our worst inclinations. So chapter 25 is another example of this as we meet uh, Nabal and Abigail. So if you would, it's our tradition to stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for God and his holy word. So we'll be going through verse 17. This is God's word. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, 
David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. That the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, would you open our eyes to the word that you have for us this morning? The word you want to speak to our hearts. Father, would you raise the dead this morning? Would you speak through me this morning? Would you convict and comfort your people through your promises? And we thank you so much for Jesus, of which all your word points to. Would you reveal him to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've titled the sermon, The Best of Men Are Men at Best. It's a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, the larger quote is, The best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are sinners who need a Savior. Holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. So the main point of what I want to reveal from this text is that no matter how great we think we are, we're sinners in need of a Savior. And no matter how, conversely, no matter how bad you think you are, we're still sinners who can access a great Savior. So if you think you're great this morning, you need a Savior. If you think you're so bad this morning, you can access a Savior. And that's what this text points us to this morning. We're going to see examples of men who some were great, some were fools, but it all points to our need for Jesus in the end. And so we're going to look at these great, great men in three different ways. The first is that great men will be footnotes. Secondly, great men will be foolish. Thirdly, great men will be forgotten. Let's look at the first idea that great men will be footnotes. And we come to just one verse. I'm just going to look at one verse for this one point, and it's in verse 1. And it's a, a huge verse because it's the death, describes the death of the, the main person of this book. It's titled Samuel. So look at verse 1 with me. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's a significant verse. I mean, we've been watching Samuel all through this book. If you remember, Samuel has been the central figure in this entire narrative all the way from the end of the Judges period till now. If you recall, in the book of Judges, we were in a very dark, dark period in Israel's history. Remember that phrase that, that pops up a few different times, that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see a very dark time in this period. There's no king. Um, no one is acknowledging God. And that's where we see this young woman in the beginning of Samuel, Hannah, who, who is barren. and She's praying for a baby. And then this baby who is born is Samuel. And he is going to be the sort of John the Baptist figure to sort of pave the way and anoint the new kings, the kings and the monarch. 
this new phase of Israel's life. And so we see him serving in the temple as a little boy under the tutelage of Eli, and then communicating God's word as a prophet to Eli and those around, and his sons who've been really bad priests, that the priesthood's going to end with Eli. And so Samuel is this judge figure, he's this priest figure, he's a prophet figure all throughout Israel. He speaks for God, he anoints God's kings, and he loves the people. And he's been with them. And so this is a difficult time for all of Israel. It says they mourned for his death and they buried him in his house at Ramah. But isn't it interesting for someone who did so much for Israel, you'd think there'd be a whole chapter on his death, but we get one verse, just one verse. Alistair Begg says, the vast majority of us will not even be a footnote in history. If we think Samuel's obituary was short, wait till it's ours. I think of what he's talking about in the history of God's plan in, in the Bible, right? If, if, if his one-liner is all he gets, we really get nothing. And, and that's true, isn't it? If you think about the grand story of history and your part to play in it and what people are going to remember about you, are you even going to get a footnote? Are people going to remember us? Have you ever asked yourself the question, what are people going to say about me when I die? What what words are they going to use? What's my obituary going to read? Well, I think something better, a better question to ask yourself is, what will you say to everybody? What message will you leave when you die? My grandfather, Ralph, is uh, 92, and... um, one of his best friends passed away a few weeks ago. His name was Lionel. And, and they were best friends for many, many years. And Lionel uh, was an elder in a Presbyterian church in Lynchburg. And he did something that I've never witnessed at a funeral. And he left a message that was read for him, for his, for, for his family, for his friends to read, um, to bless them and to be as a gift to them. And he's writing from the perspective of already being in heaven. I think it's really awesome. I've never, never experienced that. And so he, he goes from his letter, he talks about his love for his grand, great-grandchildren, his love and message to his grandchildren and to his children and to his siblings and to his wife. He goes on and on to his friends, and then he ends it with this. He says, to all of you, I am now in the presence of our risen Lord. I'm a living witness to that resurrection. And I want to say to each of you that your life there on earth is to be used for a godly purpose, and time is short. Jesus prepared a place here for us, and he paid a tremendous price to gather us here. I'm so grateful to have been offered salvation from death and hell. This is where you want to be. This is where you need to be. There is coming a time when I will see you again. And that is a promise from God. And you and I are now living in complete joy of that promise. I love you all, Lionel. I thought it was such a great gift to give the people you leave behind. And maybe some of us should start writing that letter now uh, to, give, to give to our family. And what is Samuel's message when you think about his life? Well, I think the favorite line I've read so far from Samuel and what he, he delivered was back in chapter 12. He, he delivers his farewell address to Israel. 
as the king, as Saul was being established. And, and, and Samuel's role is sort of, he's more in the shadows at this point. He's behind the scenes. But the line that I embrace more than any other in that, in that farewell address is when he says, the Lord will not forsake his people. He encourages Israel to obey, to follow the Lord, because the Lord will be with Israel. And see, go, he goes out strongly. He goes out and people are going to miss him and, and love him. And it's hard, isn't it, to lose great leaders in your family or in the church, in society. But I think most, mostly in the, in the church, it's a big deal to, to, to lose strong spiritual leaders in, in, in an individual church, but also at large. Our denomination has lost some great fathers in the faith even this year. But we need to remind ourselves that the best church leaders will be a footnote in the halls of history. Even the best. And J.C. Ryle commenting on this when in his day people were saying similar things when ministers of the church began to die and a generation began to be taken away. And he uh, said this in his book on holiness. Book holiness. He says, Fear not. For the church of Christ, when ministers die and saints are taken away, Christ can ever maintain his own cause. He will raise up better servants and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thought about the future. Cease to be cast down by the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves and sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for his own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All is going well, though our eyes may not see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Do you hear what he said there? We need to all remind ourselves that Christ will ever provide for his own church when we lose the leaders that we adore. And as we continue in this journey, as we get older... And, and near the time when the Lord calls us home, we need to remind ourselves that finishing well is hard. It's hard to finish well. And the older we get, the greater the danger of falling. That's true physically, isn't it? As well as spiritually when you get older. The, greater, the older we get, the greater the danger of falling. And so as we get older, strive to finish well looking to Jesus. Because you... One day, even if you're young, one day you'll be an example. You'll be an example to the younger Christians to look to. And as we continue to read the Bible, know this, that the Bible is not about you. Right? As we read this book, it's not mostly, it's not mainly about us. It's about God and His glory. So as we read it, remember that's why even the greatest of saints get little one-verse obituaries. And as you go about your life, know this, that your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. Your life is about God and His glory. You know, you and I, being Americans, we've been told a lie from birth. And it's this, that our lives are mainly about us our joy, our happiness, our comfort. And so, if any of you are tired this morning of playing the leading role in a story about you, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives you an alternate story. 
It's about your place in God's story. That's what he's offering you. Something much bigger and grander than you. It's about sacrifice and joy and love of our God that we get to participate in and be a part of. That's the kind of life and the story I want to be a part of. So that's the first idea that great men, even the greatest, are going to be footnotes. They'll be footnotes. Secondly, great men will be foolish. And here we're going to look at the the majority of our text, starting in verse 2. And we'll see where the foolishness starts. Look at verse 2 with me. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So here we... We get the picture of this man named Nabal, whose name literally means fool. And there's a bit of debate as to whether or not his name originally just sounded like fool and it kind of became fool in the writing, or did his parents actually, were they just mean? And they just wanted to name him fool, to maybe he would rise up uh, and not be a fool. But no, he proves that his name is accurate. But what do we know about Nabal right away? Well, first thing we hear about him is that we hear about his possessions, don't we? It says, there was a man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing these sheep. And so we hear about all this before his name. I think that the, the narrator is giving us a hint that his possessions are what define him. It's what he has before we hear about his name. That's who he is. And notice also that a fool can be smart. He can be clever. He can be rich. He can be put together. Right? Just because you're a fool doesn't mean you're stupid and simple. Being a fool means you could be clever and smart and rich and wealthy, but you're focused not on God. You're focused on yourself. You see, the world often values those who God would define as a fool. I recently met a man, and over the course of dinner with some friends, he showed me pictures of his boat, his camper, his golf cart, and he talked about the valuation of his business. He talked about how expensive his vehicles were. He talked about the private school that his children attended. And at first, I was slightly impressed. You know, you hear a couple of those things and you're impressed. But as it went on, as the, as the dinner went on, I started to feel bad, bad for him. His life was defined by his stuff, and he didn't even realize it. I saw that he was li- what he was living for. The stuff is what brought him joy. And that he was building his hopes and his dreams on, on material things. And so while it didn't make for a very good dinner discussion, it, it just made me feel bad for him. It makes me feel bad for anyone who focuses on those things and lives for those things. We're reminded in 1 John chapter 2 that what's in the world is the desires of the flesh and, and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. These are the things that are not of God. These are the things that the world offers us. And a fool is one who is taken by it and gripped by it and ruled by it. So much so that the fool ignores God 
Notice also, going down to verse 10 and 11, how Nabal responds to David's servants. He says in verse 11, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men of whom I don't know where they come from? My, 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 it's all his. That's all he can see. He worships his stuff and he ignores God. A fool is defined in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 where it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. And we, we see that he does that in two ways. In the way he idolizes the material things of this world, the, the wealth he has, but also how he rejects the Lord's anointed. He rejects David, this, this coming king who points us forward to Jesus. He rejects this man, David. And so he's a fool in those regards. He's also rejecting any sort of wisdom or, or instruction. Look at, uh, if you read Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They can't be corrected. But there's actually some irony about this story. Nabal is not the only one acting foolish. As we continue in our story, David actually shows that he struggles with foolishness as well. So following along in the story, David hears, verse 4, in the wilderness that Nabal's shearing his sheep. So David sends ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear you have shearers, now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. So ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. and we come on a feast day, please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. So what, what David is doing, he's sending his men to take care of these sheep shears, and he's just asking for a little bit of food, whatever they have on hand in return. Uh, he thinks it's, it's not that much, not that significant. And when Nabal hears from these servants, what is his response? Verse 10, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Surely he's heard of David at this point, I would think. He is, he's just, um, he's insulting him, essentially. He, he knows of Saul, he knows of David, and he's, rege- he's an Israelite, he's, from, he's a Calebite, and he's, he's just rejecting David in his pride. And so what is David's response? Every man strap on his sword, right? He gets angry quickly. He gets hot. And so we know that a fool is quickly driven to anger. And the restraint we see in chapter 24 with David, it's totally missing in chapter 25. He's acting foolishly. He says, peace, peace. Tells the servants to say, peace, peace to Nabal. But now he's saying, sword, sword. We read in Proverbs 27, verse 3, that a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation or anger is heavier than both. It's attributed to Mark Twain, this saying, never argue with a fool, onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. 
I think Mark Twain maybe got that from Proverbs 26 and ran with it where it says, Answer not a fool, lest you be like him. That's the error David's making. He's engaging with the fool and becoming a fool himself. So we see some cracks in David's righteousness, don't we? He's not perfect. He is one of the better ones, but he's not perfect. Matthew Henry writes, What are the best of men when God leaves them to themselves to try and test them that they may know what is in their hearts? What is the best of men? Commenting on that, Alistair Beck says, Well, there's a question. What are the best of men when God says, Okay, let me try you and test you. Let me see what's in your heart. And what is apparently in the heart of David immediately? It's vengeance. It's vengeance. And that's what's uncomfortable, isn't it? When we inspect our hearts, it's not hard to find foolish thoughts, isn't it? And desires. And the question is, are we willing to look? And when we see it, do we confess it and repent from it? Are we willing, are you and I willing to ask God to show us our own folly? That's what we need to be able to do. But here's the good news. The good news is that because we're fools, we're also prime candidates for the redeeming grace of God. Anthony Carter writes, The Bible reminds us that God redeems the foolish. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the everyday reminder that I have been graciously received into God's recovery program for fools. That's what it means to be a recipient of grace. And I read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 earlier. That many of God's people are considered fools. Right? He, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why did God choose what's foolish in the world? Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? Here's the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our foolishness at the cross is replaced with Jesus' wisdom, righteousness, and goodness. To put it simply, Jesus was wise your place, and he takes your foolishness at the cross. That's the good news. Because we all have that opportunity to be foolish. We will, without God's grace. Well, that's the second idea, that great men will be fools. The third idea is that great men will be forgotten. We're going to get to Abigail next week, and she's really the perfect, the, the greatest example of wisdom and discernment in this entire chapter. We'll read about that next week. But there is another person who shows discernment and wisdom, and, we, and it's easy to skip over this person because he doesn't have a name. But go down to verse 14 with me. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. So notice what, how this starts. One of the young men told Abigail. So he's communicating to Abigail What's happening between Nabal and David? And there's about to be this fight going down. They've just strapped on their swords. He's going to take out Nabal. And who knows what else might happen. So he secretly, discreetly goes to Abigail 
and tells her about this. Verse 15, yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. and He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak of him. She, he comes to her bluntly, frankly, says, look, you know Nabal. He's a worthless man. This is not going to end well. So who is this young man? The short answer is, we don't know. And we never will until heaven. And so what do we learn from this? That a nobody does something noteworthy. A nobody does something noteworthy. He does something that changes the trajectory of this story. He's not important. Not even important enough to have a name. And yet he changes the course of this. He arguably has the most important action in this entire scene. It's a reminder to us all that no matter how insignificant we are, an act of faith in obedience to God can change the outcome of big events. I have a quote in my office and it says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Remember, even the small things that you do for Christ can make big impact. Never think that your small act of faith is insignificant. What's done for God's kingdom, he will honor and remember forever and ever, no matter how small. Faithfulness will be rewarded. When I was in college, I heard from a speaker, his name is Michael O, and the title of his missions talk was, Come be a nobody for Christ. Come be a nobody. And in that, in that sermon, which really gripped my heart, he said, many people leave college with the goal to be somebody. And this usually means getting a good job, making good money, buying a nice house, driving a nice car, attaining some important position, and helping your kids to do the same. But for the Christian, being somebody usually means all of that and faithfully going to church on Sundays and Bible study during the week. But I believe that Jesus is calling for people to be a nobody for him. People who would forsake the American dream to be a part of bringing gospel hope to the nations. It's often what missionaries do, don't they? They, they leave the comfort of, of, the, of the society, the, the neighborhoods that they're comfortable in, and they go and do the hard things where they won't be on the headlines. They're not going to be pastoring some large church. People who don't mind if they are not recognized, respected, praised, or promoted, as long as the name of Jesus is cherished, exalted, and adored. That's who God wants to use. The people who don't need the recognition, the people who don't need the notoriety, but who just want to act in faith. That's what God's calling us to to do, is, is to be nobodies for him. And what's so awesome about our faith is that we have a Savior who was the God-man, and he was, a no, he was a nobody for a time. Jesus was a nobody from Nazareth. 
You remember the scene between Philip and Nathaniel? When Philip comes to Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and says, We found of him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth and the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Philip said the most important words, come and see. Right? We'll come and see. You see, when Jesus died, not much changed. And here's what I mean. Not, not theologically. Obviously, our, our, our salvation was purchased on the cross. But externally, not much changed. All we know is that the disciples were mourning the loss of Christ. Some of them went back to, to fish. But they didn't know what was going to happen next. All they knew, he had died. They hadn't, they hadn't really seen him come back to be with them. They hadn't received the Spirit yet. And we have this scene where Peter and the disciples go back and, they're, and they're, they're fishing again. And they were sad. But life had to go on. And you know, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus isn't raised, if the resurrection's not true, your faith is in vain. And we're still in our sins. So when Jesus died, not much changed in that sense. But when Jesus rose, everything changed. When Jesus rose, everything changed. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have become a footnote in history. Jesus would have just been another, another Messiah figure who'd come and gone. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been proved to be a fool, right? A man who said he was God, yet killed by his own creatures. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been forgotten. His life and teaching and miracles would have been remembered, maybe by several generations, perhaps, but without the life-changing power of the resurrection, no movement or church would have been established after him. And we wouldn't be sitting right here. But the resurrection did happen. The tomb is empty. Jesus was seen by more than 500 people. We have the accounts written right here. We have a transformed disciple group that then became the church. The very fact of his resurrection changed the disciples into powerful preachers. So my question to you is, how has Christ's resurrection changed you? Do you know the power of God in the world to come? Or are you consumed with the power of this present world that can't offer anything lasting? Are you trying to become a footnote so bad to get into the world's headlines? And so the resurrection proves that it's all true, that all Jesus said was absolutely true. God gives us hope of life beyond the grave, beyond the endless striving of the false glory of this world. We can give it a rest. We can put the, the world's possessions down and say the best of men are men at best. But by trusting in Jesus, we receive wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption now and forever more. So it's offered to you. Will you have it? Will you take it? And will you enjoy it? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that Jesus, you entered into this world of sin and death. And for a time, was a nobody. But you became 
a somebody, a somebody we can worship with all of our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, a, a somebody, a God who has saved us and redeemed us, purchased our salvation so that we can live for you and not for this world. Help us, Father. We need your strength, Holy Spirit, to do that for your glory. As you continue to fulfill your promise of building your church and taking us with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.